Are you ready to go down the rabbit hole? The All Things Alice podcast will explore the cultural phenomena of Alice in Wonderland. Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy, is your host through a wonderverse of interviews from all types of creators as they chronicle the dark yet empowering reality of Lewis Carroll's fantasies and answer the question, what is it about Alice that captivates us still today? The All Things Alice podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Ely by the Glass. My name is Layla Joy Williams, and I'm the owner and founder of Elia, which is a, this incredible beverage uh, collection that's behind me. I'm here in Spain right now, and I'm speaking to my friend, Holly, who she's in Tennessee right now. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. And so Holly actually runs an organization called Cancer Killing Goddess, and the reason why I wanted to have Holly on here today is because she's got such an incredible story. Um, you know, when we talked about doing this podcast episode, I walked away and took a couple of days just to think about how I wanted to approach this episode. And to me, for me, this episode is really about perseverance because that's one of the things that you really need in life, certainly just living, but um, also when you're in business and she's just got an incredible story. But before we get started, I would like to um, ask you to check out Elia at elia.com. Uh, please use the code Elia20 for a 20% discount. And just know that a dollar from each purchase is uh, donated to the Deliver Fund, which is an organization that works to circumvent human trafficking. And today I am drinking our, it's a prototype, guys. It's our blonde beer that's launching in 2024. So cheers. Cheers. And let's begin. Let us begin. <laughs> So Holly, I mean, we met, I don't know how many years ago, like it must be like, oh gosh, like, it feels like a couple lifetimes ago, it's, uh, 2009, 2009 oh would be when we met. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. when we first started working oh together. Yeah. So we worked at a company guys, uh, was, I call it a sleeping giant. It was like a very small company, but it had many tentacles. And, um, if anybody who knows my story, I worked with Michael Kors and Stuart Weitzman, HSN, and that's the company that, uh, made that possible. And Holly also worked for that company. So we didn't, we worked, we kind of interacted with each, we, we kind of crossed paths. Um, we were working in different areas, but what I loved about Holly was that she always had the guys like nervous. Like, <laughs> that was the story I got back. All the guys were scared of Holly, but she's like a beast in her own right. And I mean that in the best sense of the word, because certainly when you're in business and you're working in New York, that you have to have a certain fortitude, a certain backbone to really kind of make your way. And so I've, you know, Holly and I have touched we've crossed paths and we've kind of gone our separate ways and we've crossed paths and we've gone our separate ways. And the, not too long ago, we crossed paths again. And every time we cross paths, you share a story with me that is just knocks me off my feet, you know, and as challenging as things have been at times for you, what I always walk away with, and I'm always just really impressed with, and I mean this genuinely is your just ability to pick yourself up and persevere and move to the next goal or the next phase of your life. And that is, that's the most, if I can, one of the greatest things about getting older is that you have more of a sense of yourself. Yes. <laughs> but you also understand that there is no such thing as like avoiding challenges in life. They happen. Yep. 
Yeah. Sometimes, most times it's beyond your control and it's how you handle the situation, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to, uh, I guess maybe, where do you want to start? I think we should start with, uh, like when we first met what was happening there and you Mm. had just had, you were getting, you were, she had, she had adopted a baby. She had a baby. She adopted a a child at that point. So I'll hand you the floor because I think everyone was going to love the floor. Okay. (laughs) So yeah. So 2009, um, I'll back up to 2008. Um, I was married to my first husband and in 2008 we lost a child. Um, she is, um, she would be 15, um, this week, which is so, so crazy. Um, but the grief that we both faced, it it tore us apart. And it also, um, brought a lot of things to light that I was just, um, I was not opening my eyes to. And so Chris and I definitely went two separate ways with our grief. And what I did is I went to Ethiopia. I wanted to get away. I wanted to find myself. I wanted to be, I wanted to be alone. Um, so I left, um, a very wonderful, great job in St. Louis. I went to Ethiopia. I was there for six weeks on a mission trip. And that's where I met Samara, who I ultimately adopted. So I'll kind of fast forward through like 2008 was this. Wait a minute. You just, you go on a mission trip. You're just like, I need to get out of here. Like I want to go somewhere else. I want to, Yes. like, can you tell me like, because I've, I too have had a miscarriage and I, it's, it's an interesting thing because the grief that comes with it is sometimes so just like a freight truck. You just don't even know where to put that. Wow. And so I'm just, uh, the fact that you, here we go, picked yourself up and decided you wanted to go somewhere else. I think that is just incredible. Cause all I wanted to do was like hide. Yeah. <laughs> I, so what I found in my life and I, I mean, really, I guess my challenges started when I was five. Cause that was the first time I had cancer. I had stage four ovarian cancer when I was five years old. Yeah. What? I did. You didn't tell me. Oh my God. I this did. is what I'm talking I about. Did. So wow. as a, as a tiny little girl, I had chemo. I went through all the being bald and all that. So I guess what I learned just really honestly through my whole entire life is that when the, when the Mack truck comes and hits me in the face, the best thing I can do is do something for others. And that is what gets me up again. That's what takes me out of that hiding and just wanting to pull the covers over my head for days. Now, don't get me wrong. I do pull the covers over my head for days and get all that out of my system. But then the, the next step for me has just always been to do something for others. Um, yeah, starting, starting at that age, starting when I was little. So how did that color your perspective as a child, you know, to go through something like that? Because it's like, no child should ever have to face that, you know, when you're, yeah. How did that color your, your, I don't know. It's, it's crazy because I, um, I don't look at my childhood as, or having cancer as a child as a bad thing. I, I mean, of course I remember horrible times. I remember, I remember being basically 
dragged into my first experience with chemo because I thought in my head, I thought they're going to put a needle in me and my hair is going to fall out. You know, I had this horrible, horrible fear of losing my hair. And, um, it, you know, of course it wasn't like that, but so I had those bad times, but also I only knew that life. So it wasn't like I had anything to compare it to. Being, being sick as a kid was just, that was part of part of me. That was who I was. My parents were, especially my mom was amazing with how she handled it, how she told me everything. Um, I, I was prepared as, as a young kid even to possibly have to adopt because with having ovarian cancer at that that age, you know, there was at that time too. Yeah. There were, um, you know, definitely they were saying you may or may not, they did save one of my ovaries, thank God. Um, but I remember my mom being very open about the fact that she, she wanted them to do everything they could so that I could have a baby if I wanted to. But we were, we talked about things like that as, as young as five years old, you know? So I guess it, it aged me, um, in a sense, but at the same time too, I saw this outpouring of love from so many people in our community, so many strangers that I had no idea, you know, who they were. My parents were so young. I mean, my mom was 21 when she had me. So here she is, you know, mid twenties and, and, has this sick child. So they were, they needed a lot of help and they're just, there were so many people who just stepped up and did things for our family that, you know, I just, I appreciate, I appreciate so much. And so it gave me that sense of, um, wanting to do that for others. It really did. Um, I think it also gave me a sense of maybe more understanding of what other people go through. Um, mm-hmm. So I've always, I've always been, I, I've never judged. I've always, I've always kind of known like there, something could be going on with someone that you just, you just never know what, what they're going through. That is true. Cause That's we all true. are, I mean, we, we all, all are. We, you often don't think about it until you're going through something and you're like, yeah, oh, I wonder if I'm the only person, right. but what's always remarkable about you, Holly is that you've always got a smile on your face, right? <laughs> that is incredible, you know? I mean, I try, I try, but I can tell you that, you know, I I really admire that. Um, I think that probably well, really comes messy. from the fact that I've gotten through so much. I mean, it's a miracle that I made it through that. It really is. I mean, I, 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 I it was, it's a miracle. I made it through that and- <laughs> That makes total sense as to why all the other bullshit that, you know, we've had, we've dealt with in, in the business world just doesn't even like, it's like, poof, no, you know, it does not phase me. It doesn't because they're, yeah, re, the reality of what could be, um, is so, you know, there, there's always something that, that could be going on or could be so much worse. And so, yeah. Yeah. Live, live with a smile for sure. Because we, we woke up today, you know? Yeah. 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 So back to, um, Africa. Okay. So you decide that, yeah. How did yeah. you, why did you decide Africa? So definitely for selfish reasons, 
I, I had, like I said, I had always thought about adopting and you and I have talked about this, um, with going to China as much as we did, we saw so many adoptions and all that. So I, by the way, guys, when we started to go to China, like in the early two thousands, China had not yet changed. Uh, they, they were an open country. Yeah. So we would fly over with families, no children, yeah. and fly back to the United States. And they'd have two, three kids bringing out Chinese artifacts out of the country. It was all sorts of like, it was a different thing. It was wild. It was wild. Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess with seeing that, I always thought that I would adopt from China. And because they were such an open country, their wait list was so long. And then I met someone who was a friend of a friend who had adopted from Ethiopia and said, oh, well, their wait list is really short. They don't, you know, have all this. So it was selfish. It was, you know, there was this, there was a very, very deep hole after losing Cordelia that, I needed to fill. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like going there, um, you know, wanting to work in the orphanages, wanting to help with the babies that, you know, and, and wanting to adopt from there, it was, it, it was to fill that. It was really to fill that hole. And I say that now, back then I would have never admitted that. Um, because, you know, a lot of people were like, you can't just replace what, you know, you can't just replace a child. You, and obviously I know that, but I, I, I rushed into things I did. Mm -hmm. And I also, I didn't care whether my husband at the time was on board or not. I was just like Mm -hmm. on the path, like I am doing this. I am, this is what's happening. So I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't suggest (laughs) that people Mm -hmm. do it the way I did. I should have done a lot more research. I should have taken a lot more time, but, um, at the same time I fell in love with Samara. And when I look at it now, she's perfect for me and I'm perfect for her. We were meant to be together. We just were. That is so beautiful. So, and so tell us like how long, um, so did you meet Samara immediately when you got to the orphanage or like, I, you got to Kenya? yeah, I did. I met her, um, I met her right away. And then, um, there was, where was she like, was she in a bassinet or like, yeah, yeah, this is gross. It's so gross. <laughs> okay. So the babies in the orphanage were picture, picture a size of a crib. Okay. But the babies were laying this way so that they could lay like five babies in a row and they don't do diapering in that country. So the smell, um, I don't think I will ever forget the smell because this room had, gosh, maybe seven or eight cribs. And then you say like five babies, four or five babies per crib. And they're all just kind of laying in their own, you know, each one just had like a um, blanket underneath them. So they would pull out the blanket when it was soiled. And, but then you, you had, you know, a baby rolling to the side to, and would grab the poo and put, I mean, I, I can't even, and, and the flies, the flies, you, I, it was just like, I, I felt like I, malaria was just in the air because it was just so, yeah, it was horrible. It was, the conditions were horrible. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I wanted to take every baby home with me. I wanted to take every kid home with me. It was, it was just, um, it was, it was very sad. It was very sad. And so what made you, what was it, what was the connection like with Samara? What made you say her? Like, you know, cause I'm. So when in my naivete, um, of adoption, I wanted a baby that was very young. That was, that was my, my thought process was, oh, there won't be any trauma. There won't be any, you know, baggage if I adopt a very, very, very young baby, um, which she was. Um, when I met her, she was just four months old, just shy of four months old. And she was even, she was so malnourished. She only weighed eight pounds at that time. Yeah. And had a crazy distended stomach. She had Giardia. Um, you know, the parasites there were awful. One of my jobs specifically was to take the babies. We would, we would put them in like this little van and take them to the clinics. And she was almost always on our ride to the clinics. You know, it was just, she needed she needed help every day. So, um, I guess there was that too, just, you know, being with her, I was with her a lot. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so then what happened from there? I mean, um, so you, do you tell the organization I would like to adopt her? Do you call your attorney in America? Like how does that yeah, work? So the organization that I was with, they, um, they had an office in Minnesota and then they had their Ethiopian office too. So they already knew that I had my, I had been working on my dossier to do, you know, so the adoption process from this, from the United States side was already like in, in progress. So that was, um, that part was very simple. So interesting. And so when you apply for adoption overseas, um, and you create your dossier, does the U.S. government have to get involved in that or how does oh, that yes. happen? Yeah, they, um, you, I mean, your dossier is like this thick. It's crazy. Oh, it's um, psychiatric testing, medical testing, um, fingerprinting. Um, I just, you can't even imagine all the stuff that you have to go through just to get, you know, approved for your adoption and different agencies had different, um, different rules. I remember one agency that I really wanted to go through, um, denied us because I took medicine for anxiety and they, they were like, no, you can't do it. And then some places would not allow a same sex couple to adopt. Some places would not, you know, there were just, just different rules if we're, you know, but they, they dig deep into your, into your life. There's a social worker that will come to your home and evaluate that. And just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal, a really big deal. And so when you decided upon Samara, you let them know, and then what is a process from there? Because I know that there was the, the story that you, we were yes. talking about the other day, yeah. was like, because there's I was getting so confused. I'm like, what? I guess, I guess there's the process and then there's what I went what through. Happened? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the process should be that you go to court. And the courts should then say, okay, yes, the, the parent or the guardian in Ethiopia has 
given up their rights. And And that happens in Ethiopia, Ethiopian court or court in the United States? Ethiopian court first. Yeah. First there that they have to make sure that that, that that child was in reality supposed to be given up for adoption. And then the court has to also then look at me and my dossier and say, yes, you are the person. And then they give the child a visa and, um, the U S gives them a green card and you get all that together and bring them back to the United States. Then in the States you readopt again. So you are official in both countries basically. And when you readopt, then that gets them their permanent, you know, U S citizenship. So, and so what happened in your case? (laughs) So (laughs) in our case, I mentioned to you that, you know, as I was there that whole amount of time, I witnessed a lot of things. I witnessed falsified information, falsified documents. I witnessed child trafficking, um, where basically what was happening is the agency in Ethiopia was going to these rural areas and telling the parents or the grandparents, whomever, they were telling them, we're going to take your child, we're going to send them to America to get their um, education. They'll be sending you money because they'll have all this wealth and from America and blah, blah, blah. And then when they're old enough, they'll come back and they'll take care of you. So, but what was really happening though? What was happening to those children? What, Nobody knows. What was really happening is American families were adopting them, but the American families were never told these stories. So the Ethiopian families were having this expectation that they were going to be getting money and getting, you know, help. And the American families just thought I'm adopting a child. That's my child forever. And I, I definitely always, I was always very, very curious about Samara's birth. I was curious about all the birth mothers because some of the birth mothers actually were, would go to the orphanage and help and work there, feed the baby, something like that. But then others of them were, it was very, um, it was really like private. I remember one day saying, I, you know, I wanted to meet Samara's birth mom and they were like, oh, she is in another area. Then the next day it was like, oh, she was in a car accident. The next time it was, oh, she broke her leg. And I remember saying when she broke her leg, I was like, well, good. Then she's probably sitting somewhere that she can't get up and move. Take me there so that I can meet her. And then it was another excuse and another excuse. And so it, that's where my wheels started turning as to like, why are some of these, you know, some of these birth mothers are we're not able to see them. And then when I would work in the office, these birth mothers would come in begging for money, begging for things. And, um, a woman in the office was very, very smart, spoke very good English. And she said to me, well, they think they're, they're being paid. And then her, she was putting two and two together with me and realizing all of what was going on. And the last straw for me was when 
a parent, a dad, I think it was either a dad or a grandpa, and I'm not 100% sure, brought a gun into the office threatening. You were there? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And basically threatening them at the agency. And that's when I went to the U.S. Embassy and said, something is very, very wrong here. Something has, you know, and they had, they didn't suspect anything. They didn't know from their side. So when they started investigating, first of all, they said, you need to get out of the country right away, which was, that was a, that was horrible for me. I, I remember feeling like I just wanted to, I wanted to die at that moment. Cause I was like, here I am on the verge of I, you know, having another baby taken away or, or not with me, you know, and it was just, it was so, so heartbreaking and hard for me to leave there. And what I suspected was that I wouldn't see her again. And that's what they tried to do. They really did. They moved her, they changed her name. Um, once they, you know, I, I was the only one there at that point. So they knew I was the one who told on them. And Agitu called me and said, you'll never see her again. So it was, oh my God. yeah, it was devastating. Once you got back, uh, that is just really quite uh, a lot to deal with. Once you got b- back, what were your steps to, because I remember you mentioned uh, Chuck Schumer. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I got back. Um, my husband at the time had moved to New York for a job. He was, um, he was up there, you know, already. And, um, I basically, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think of the timeline cause it was so crazy. I basically moved to New York in September. I started a job there and then met Sh- Schumer through our, our, you know, mutual connections at the company, um, met him, told him my story. And it was just like a moment and he made everything happen. He got, helped us find her. I had already, I had already had an investigator who I had hired and the driver we basically found Samara through finding the driver that took her to wherever they had taken her and changed her name and all that. So found, we found her through his help and then he got the adoption expedited and I basically got to like head over and pick her up and just leave and, and bring her back. And that was all because of his amazing, amazing help. So. I mean, but just what are the circuit? What, what, how could you have ever imagined that, you know, the, the general, the people that we worked with before had that connection to put you like in touch with somebody I know. as powerful, influential as Chuck Schumer right. for you to complete the adoption. Right. It was wow. just everything aligned in God's time. That was what it was. Yeah. Everything aligned it, as it should have. And, um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely crazy and, wonderful and scary. And then here I am in New York with a new job and a new baby and going, now what? Now <laughs> I don't what? know what to so do. What year is that? 2010? Is that 2010? So I brought her home in 2009, um, November, the end of November, okay. right around Thanksgiving time. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. And so then, then what happened, Holly? Oh, so then, <laughs> then my husband left and moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> and at that time, I remember being in London and we kind of crossed paths, like, as we do. Yes. And we were like, on Oxford Street at Topshop and I yep. remember just walking around. I mean, what are the chances that we would meet in the middle of London, Yes. be at the same place, and, and we just you just started to share. And I just remember sitting there and listening and just being like gobsmacked at what had, what he, I don't know. I don't remember what you told me, but I just remember the feeling that I always have when we, when we reconnect, I'm just, I can't believe what you're telling me. I mean, wow. It's just incredible. I remember just being like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is, this is a tribute to you though. You are the best listener. And I feel like, I feel like I, I swear to God, Layla, I don't do this to everybody, but when I talk to you, I tend to just be like, and, and I let it all out. You know what's funny? My dad said when I was little, I probably was four, five or six. And I said to him, you always he'll tell the story. He's like, you, you came to me and you're like, daddy, why do people tell me things? <laughs> And they, they really do. But the thing is, I take it in and I, I'm like a, my aunt calls me like a, a vault. Like it comes in and I really, if it's something that you don't want me to share, yeah. I will not share it. Yes. To the point sometimes where I forget that I even, you told me because it's like, right. it's in the past. Right. But I think it's such, now that I'm older, I feel like it's such an honor because they're, mm, the fact that people trust me enough to share some of the most intimate details of their life. I mean, yeah. what a, it's such an honor. So yeah. And it's very, it's, it's, um, just, it's beautiful to be able to do that with someone. It really is. It really is. And I just, I appreciate it so much. Oh, you're so, you're so kind. <laughs> so tell us what happened after us. We, we talk, we, we speak. I remember it was a combination of personal, you know, you and your husband going through a lot. Uh, at that point you had a baby, you had Samara in the country. Uh-huh. And then, um, how did your life unfold from that point? Because it was a lot, a lot had, had transpired at that point. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> Um, he and I had to stay married to complete the adoption. So we were, we were separated for a few years before we actually got divorced. And, um, you know, during that time, I'm sure it was very confusing for her. She, uh, you know, she, he would sometimes come over, sometimes be around, sometimes not. It was, it was very loosey goosey. There was no like, oh, this is our arrangement or anything. Um, And I was also realizing, worrying that there was something wrong there. Samara was tough. She was a really, really hard baby. Um, Yeah. And in what way? Like she crying? Um, aggressive crying a lot. Um, she would pull her own hair. She would eat her own poop. She would do a lot. Yeah. Like there were just a lot of things that, um, just were abnormal things. And, um, I put her into a, um, like a little daycare, um, preschool type of thing. And the teachers there were the ones who were kind of like, okay, new mom, we're going to tell you this is not normal stuff, you know? And they were very sweet and very helpful in getting her evaluated, trying to figure out what was wrong. But honestly, we didn't get her, um, 
she's autistic, we didn't actually get the autism diagnosis until last year. And, you know, she's, she's 14, 14 now. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's really incredible. So, so you have basically from the month of like four months until 14, been managing a situation, but you had no diagnosis. You just didn't, under, you knew something was wrong because yeah. it was obvious. Yeah. But just that's incredible. And we would meet these doctors, con- you know, I mean, thank God we were in New York because we had the best of the best, you know, doctors at our, at our disposal. Um, we'd go to, you know, NYU for the best neurologists and do the, all these different things. Um, and every time we'd see a doctor, someone would give us this recommendation and say the world renowned Dr. So-and-so or the world renowned, you know, blah, blah, blah. We'd sit in these rooms and every doctor would give her a different diagnosis. Every doctor would say, she's puzzling. We don't know. We don't know. Um, they would talk about her having reactive attachment disorder, which made a lot of sense because of the trauma. Can you tell us like what, because that's really shocking. Yes. And New York is one of those places where you have the, the creme de la creme yeah. and like, in the, certainly in the medical field, um, as well as so much more, yeah. but like what was puzzling? What was it that every doctor was like, what was she doing still? They were like, that's not normal. We think it's this, but that is like, I, it was her aggression. It was her fight or flight was so intense that even at the age of three and four adults could sometimes not hold her down because I mean, I, gosh, I liken it to like the incredible Hulk or something, something would happen and she would, this adrenaline and this fight or flight would come take her over and it would be, it, it would be, she could do anything. She could get herself out of her car seat. She could, she could hit, she could break things. Um, just, and she would do this in front of the doctors. She did do it in front of doctors. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would prescribe medications that would just basically be Make her lethargic. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. then I'd be like, no, I'm not, I'm not just going to sedate my child. Like then, then all of a sudden she's a zombie. And I remember even some doctor saying, well, what do you prefer? And I'm like, no, I don't prefer either. I don't want the zombie and I don't want the aggression. There has to be something. There has to be something. What's remarkable about this is every time you'd bring her to the office, if I could, I would scoop her up. Yes. And I remember, I, I have this picture somewhere. She, she's sitting on my lap. She was like, I don't know, maybe four, five. I don't know, yeah. three, five. Yeah. And she's so sweet. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's so cute. I can't wait to have a baby. Yes. But I, it was, you know, so it's it's just, when you told me, when you shared this with me, I was like, really? I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And, and you know. So if you could. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you could go back and speak to yourself, your younger self knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? What did you override? What would you have done differently? Gosh, that's a great, great question. I, I think that I would have, I would have tried to push for the autism diagnosis. I think that is probably where I I didn't push for that enough. 
Um, and, and it's funny because everywhere you look, there's autism, autism, autism. And you think it wasn't like that back then. It wasn't. It wasn't like, it was like narcissism. Everybody, yes. narcissism, everywhere, but it wasn't like that back then. It wasn't. And so I, if I look back, I wish that that is what, where I would have started because with autism, and what, like the programs we have her in now with ABA and the way that you speak to her and the way that we interact and the way that we're teaching her social skills now, if I would have taught those to her at those ages, at three, four, two, three, four, I, we would be in a totally different situation. What's ABA? What is ABA? It's applied behavioral analysis. So it's a type of... Um, treatment basically for children with autism, even adults with autism. Um, it's a bit controversial. Some people do not like it. It's a very much a reward and consequences type of system. And I think that some, some people have said it's like training an animal where Mm. it's, you're very, you're very direct. You're very short. You're very black and white. And you get, you get the prize, you get the skittle if you do your, you know, um, but the people that are complaining about it being like training a dog, do they also have children with autism and do they have a better solution in terms of, of education? Course not. I mean, everyone has an opinion, yes. but yes. as a mother, cause I'm a mother too, yeah. you just want to make sure that your child is safe and they understand right from wrong. Yes. This is what you need to do. This is, you know, yeah. because they won't always be in your purview. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. It's, it's very much, um, also just teaching them how to be social and, mm-hmm. um, you know, social skills is something that you can learn, but now I'm teaching her at 14 and it's, you know, it's, it's way beyond time, way beyond time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I can't blame any of the doctors. I can't blame any mm-hmm. of the, the things that we, we tried or did because she presents, she's very smart and she mm-hmm. present, like you said, she presents as this charismatic, adorable little child you would me, never know. Yes, yeah. you would never know these things um, because most of the time, when she wasn't, when she felt safe with you, which of course she felt safe with you, there's there's this lovey, wonderful child. But the moment that she didn't feel safe, I mean, those moments could happen in Target. <laughs> Because I can remember so many times having to just leave my cart full of whatever I was buying because someone looked at her or rubbed her head. She doesn't want people touching her. So, you know, somebody would come up with good intentions like, oh, my gosh, you're the cutest little thing. And then I'd be like, oh, I knew we have to leave the store and get out of it. You know what, Holly? I believe this the depths of my soul. Cause I remember as a child, I was very, my sister would say that I'd never spoke to anybody because I just, you feel you have, um, you're not, you're just an, a very pure spirit yeah. and you, you pick up on energy from people. Yes. And so that is, she just didn't know how to manage that. Right. But I, I trust 
children and I trust animals because they know. Yes. You know what I yes. mean? So yeah, yeah she, I can her, She is, oh, she's such an energetic spirit. She can walk into mm-hmm. a room and just, I, I almost, I, what did I call her one day? It was like, um, the born identity, you know, that where he would walk into a room and just, you know, like basically just checking everyone out. She can do that and energetically do that. And I, I just see that even now she, will be drawn to the people with good energy and drawn to the, the good spirits. And then the other ones watch out. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> Great. That's amazing. I think that's a blessing in its own way. It Cause it's like, I wonder, does she have synesthesia? Like, does she see cult? Like, um, how do I say this? It's I I'm probably not saying this properly. And I feel like I am, I have a bit of it myself, but it usually comes in the form of if you're a musician, for example, when you hear music, you actually see colors and patterns. You mm. tend to think of numbers in your head. This is what I have. They have a pattern, you know, in your mind and the way they sit visually in yeah, your head. Yeah. So um, I'm curious to know if she has that. So I have, kind of cool. I've never heard it called that, but she definitely has something that is similar to that with letters. So, you know, if you were mm-hmm. going to, if you're going to write on a page, you're going to just write from left to right and go down the page. She's never been able to do that in order. She writes uh-huh. like this and it, uh-huh. and, and so there's something to that, that she has yeah. a very different order in how she yeah. And how she does things. So yeah, I've never yeah, heard it maybe. called that, but I, I would almost say a hundred percent. She has that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you are at this point, um, speaking to a lot of, uh, specialists about Samara and, um, uh, take me to a point where you start to see some change or another life event. That's like a, another marker for some transition. Well, I reconnected with my high school boyfriend, Rob Wallace, who's now my husband, who is the most wonderful man on the planet. Um, I reconnected with him and in about five seconds, we realized that we should get married. Um, and was he married before or was he not married and he married, you got married? He was, he was married before. Um, um, oh gosh, Layla Joy, you don't even know this story. (laughs) Buckle up folks. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, he's going to probably kill me for sharing this, but, um, yeah. So Rob and I dated in high school and then I kissed a boy named Dan Jones. What ages? What ages did you guys? 17, 18, 19, like there. Yeah. Um, so I kissed a boy named Dan Jones. I told him about it. And so we broke up. Okay. Then he was very angry and very sad and I broke his heart and it was horrible. Um, and I say that he needed to get back at me about this. He says, this is not the case, but a few years later, he married my cousin in Vegas. Stop it right now. Oh my God. (laughs) See, what are you talking about? Oh my God. And he, they called me, they called me from Vegas 
And she's like, wait a minute. Your cousin knew that you were, you were, had date. Oh, obviously she knew. Okay. Yes. Forget it. Yeah. Dumb question. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just curious. This is my cousin that I grew up with like a sister, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So she knew what she was doing. He knew what he was doing. Um, yeah, they called me They're in Vegas and she's like, Holly, you're here in spirit. I'm wearing your jeans. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that it was a quickie Vegas marriage, divorce, the whole thing. But yes, he was married before. So oh my um, God. how thrilled was she with, that you guys got back together? Oh, thrilled. Yeah. Well, it was really funny because we were like, do we have to like tell her and make this like this official thing? And we did. We, of course we, you know, told her and, and she was like, I know you guys, she was like, he's the love of your life. Oh, of course you should marry him. So right, it was I, okay. I'm all, all good. Not, not drama there, but yeah. So, um, yeah, so, but he had not been, you know, married or had any kids since that little, um, that little (laughs) tidbit of his life. So we, um, we planned our wedding very quickly and he, um, he loved Samara. He loved Samara like I did. He saw through a lot of the stuff that she was going through and he saw, this wonderful little girl too, that was, you know, he's like, she needs us and we, we have to figure this out. And he has been her advocate just like I have ever since, you know? And, um, but that big life event turned into, I got pregnant and after, you know, the miscarriages after my, you know, um, stillborn experience, you know, with, with Cordelia, the doctors were very much like, don't do this again. Yeah. Yeah. And so I found a doctor. I mean, again, thank God I was in New York, Dr. Klein. Um, he was like, I'm going to, stitch you closed with the surclage. You're going to be on bed rest. I'm going to send a nurse to give you shots every week, whatever. And you can have this baby. And he was very positive. He was very like, we can make this happen. And so nothing better than a good doctor. I know. I know. I I just, I, I love him. I love him. I think I pray for him still all the time. Cause I just, it was such a great experience. Um, but yeah, I did go into labor early with her, um, with Greta, who's now my, you know, almost 10 year old, but, um, I remember you being pregnant. I remember yeah. there's Sir Claude. I never heard of that. I would, I, again, I sat in your office and you told me this whole story. And I was like, I had never heard of it either. I was like, you're going to do what to me? <laughs> <laughs> but, wow. Yeah. So I, um, so that really disrupted Samara majorly because she had just had me, you know, her, her life was her and I, and, and our nanny who was instrumental in, in helping me with, with everything, but, um, all of a sudden having a man in her life and having a baby in her life, she was very, very jealous of Greta. And, um, she tried to, she tried to kill Greta a couple of times. She tried to choke her. She tried to push her down the stairs. Like there was a time when I just couldn't, I could never be alone. One of the, even if I'm in the bathroom, one of them had to be with me because it was, it was very, very scary. We had our nanny full time at that point to, 
just because it, you needed two people at home at all times. Um, and that was when we, that was a very hard time because we had to hospitalize Samara and had to put her in a residential treatment center. And, um, that was one of the hardest decisions of my entire life. Um, yeah, but Holly, I, I don't, I remember this time. I don't, at that time, I didn't know any of this. So what is remarkable to me, knowing the jobs that we had, <laughs> yeah. what was expected of the volume of the business that we were all responsible for, yeah. the fact that you were managing that and also going home to that is absolutely incredible. I don't know how I did that. I really don't. I, I, um, yeah, I, I still don't know how I did that. It was, um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, but it was, um, a very, very tough time, very tough time. And as you're going through, although you had your husband, so I was just, yes. Yeah. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah. And it brought, it brought Rob and I a lot closer too, um, which I know that it could have gone the opposite way. It could have tore us apart because it was very stressful time, but it didn't, it brought us closer. Cause we both had these, like, we're on the same team. We're going to get her healthy. We want her to be home with us. We, we had, you know, the same goals with everything we wanted, we wanted Greta to be safe. And that was, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank God that he was, he was that, that good <laughs> and still is. So yeah, but coming out of the residential facility, it changed Samara's life too. She, they offered ABA, which is what she's getting now. And they did a lot of that. They did yoga all the time. Yoga helped her tremendously just getting into trying to get into her own body. Um, super helpful for that, you know, well, for any mental challenges, any mental illness or any, anybody, (laughs) no matter what. So it was yoga, it was ABA and she, she did, she did a, did a great turnaround with that. She really did. So that's remarkable. And how old was she then? Like six? No, older than that. She was, um, up to like eight, nine, Air, there. Oh, yeah. Wow. So she was told when Greta was born? She was five when Greta was born. Five. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. That is, wow. So okay. we had some and so, very tough um, years there. I, wow. And so, um, then what happened? That's what I'm just going to say. And then what happened? Because, what? You know, yeah. Okay. So then what was I, um, kind of saw things were changing at the company that, you know, we both worked at, you were no longer there at this point. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, a couple other people who I respected, um, in the business were also no longer there. And I could just, you know, there's change, change. You're feeling it in the air. And so I was given the opportunity though, to, leave New York, move to Tennessee and run. Your Tennessee is lovely. It is. It is. I, I love it. Oh, you have to come stay with us then. Cause it's, oh, yeah. it's, we have beautiful, um, hike, hiking areas. We have waterfalls everywhere. It's just, it's, it's beautiful. 
So America is so beautiful. I had the opportunity to drive across the country. Yeah. And I was like, it was so weird because I spent all this time in New York or Europe or Asia and I never really saw America. And yeah. then I, and then I was like oh, a couple of years ago, like five. And then I was like, my goodness, this country is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We have such beautiful little pockets of, of greatness, you know, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, so this opportunity came up to, um, run the volume division and come down here. So I, um, I'm also, I'm skipping like a little bit of cervical cancer in here because it was very, it was very quick, <laughs> but wow. yeah, but I did, I did go through, I had to, I had some cancer stuff and, um, didn't have to do any chemo or anything like that. It was, I had to have a hysterectomy and all that, but that was 2017 or something there, 18, something like that. But, um, that was, that was fine. Then we were moving down here and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, literally, during the move, like the movers had already come to our New York house, packed it up. We're driving this big truck down to Tennessee to move us. And that was the the same day that the doctor called and said they had, they had found the cancer in my breasts, my left breast. So, um, we ended up, I was, I was nervous about leaving then. I was nervous about leaving my doctors that I had trusted and, you know, all of that. So we rented this tiny little basement apartment just because I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can leave yet. So we had the rental in New York. We had rented a place down here to transition in. So it was, there was a a month of a lot of unknowns, um, where I was just basically still with my doctors in New York, but interviewing doctors down here to, to see what, what was going to happen here. And your husband is remarkable. That's that's incredible. Yeah, it was, yeah, he was, he was amazing. Um, so ultimately I did find a doctor down here at Vanderbilt that I trusted and loved and then had to go through a double mastectomy, which was awful, 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 awful. My breast cancer was, um, it was really only my left breast, but because of the history, they felt like they should take both breasts. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, that's just been now three and a half years, three years ago. And, um, it's still, that's still like, that's a, that's a very tough, um, a thing to, to lose your breasts. I didn't, I, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I had no idea that I would lose my nipples. And that was very strange to me. It still is very strange to me, um, to not have that. Um, you know, it's such a, it's, womanhood and, and beauty. And, you know, not that I had these wonderful boobs, but I, yeah, but I just, I mean, I, they're part of is- you and you just, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's a bit of like a, like an amputation, I guess, because you still, 
Not a bit. You, yeah, That's an it, it is. Oh, it is. It's like, yeah. and I still have like feelings sometimes, like phantom feelings. It's just, yeah. The breast cancer was a very, very intimately strange thing to go through. So, and now you understand everybody why I, I when I when Holly and I were when I asked her to do this podcast and I said. <laughs> She just told me a lot of stuff and I, you don't know where to, I didn't know where to go with this, but what came through as I was thinking, this is a story, her, her life story is a story about fortitude and moving forward. And, you know, it's, it's really quite inspiring because any one of the events that we've talked about up to this point, probably have, could very well knock somebody else out. (laughs) One of them. And the fact that you've had a life that has um, had very high highs and great success, you know, because there is that too. And also, you know, these turns and twists. And uh, I just, I I said to you the other day, I was like, I kept saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. (laughs) I think you're just like a 10 gallon person. It's just so incredible. It really is. You know, I mean, it puts everything in perspective because I, I, everybody goes through something, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I just, yeah, I have, I just think you're incredible. So continue. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, it just, um, so the, the cancer's happening, the surgeries are happening, all of this, and then COVID happens. And whew, so that is, you know, everyone in the world has their crazy, awful, what happened during COVID stories. Um, and yeah, us too. But the the company that I, you know, that I worked for, they had to close due to COVID. They had, you know, all, all these, you, you know, this, all this product on the water coming to America to be sold and no stores open to sell it to. So, um, they kept a few of us on staff to just try to sell off anything that we could. How, what a scary thing to have awful. to deal with, right? It was, yeah, it was so depressing. Every day was more and more depressing because you'd, you know, I, I had such empathy for them knowing that they had no control over any of this. And then I had, I mean, I was over here and I was watching, yeah. hearing top shopping going up like big, Major. massive companies yes. were sitting on enormous amounts of inventory. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was just 2019 was like a year that everybody blew, like blew records in terms of sales and they, I'm sure probably overbought and oh yeah. 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 I mean, 2019 was my, um, that was, I thought I was a rich girl that year for sure. Like our sale, it was, it was crazy, crazy. I remember coming to New York city because I, that year I was twice in Brazil, twice in Miami, twice in Spain. It was like flying all over the place. And I remember distinctly coming back to New York and Ilya, the shoe company was having not a party, but I was, we were part of an event at Hudson Yards. And at that point I really hadn't seen Hudson Yards and it was at uh, some sort of like beautiful upscale independent boutique in the Neiman Marcus like mall building. And apparently they had a store, I believe in Texas, but it was only for the upper, upper echelon. And I walked into New York City 
And I was like, oh my gosh, Manhattan has become a city of billionaires. Yeah. Um, Dwayne Reed, City, mm-hmm. no, Chase Bank and like Starbucks. That was it. Like there was billionaires. You had all these empty apartments, luxury buildings, empty. Mm-hmm. Just like shell companies. Yeah. And like, and New York, we know New York to be a place where you, you have everybody from the. Oh, yes. Not, but everybody kind of intermingles. And I had never, New York is great because you had all these artists. It was, a, you know, world of artists and those in business. And so everybody interacting, it's one of the few places that, that happens. Yes. Well. Like London is very classist and everyone's separate. Paris, the same thing. Yeah. New York. Most places and, in the world are New very classist and New York never was, never was. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, yeah. 2019 for everybody was like, this is great. Right. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So then, um, yeah, that, that happening, um, so kind of like shutting down the company, uh, my health also not being so good. And then also just realizing, okay, at the end of this, I'm working really hard to sell all these shoes to no one who cares about shoes. That part was depressing too. It's like, I'm, I'm, I, what am I selling? Like, this is ridiculous. You know, people are losing their lives and I'm calling going, Hey, would you buy a hundred pair of shoes? It was just the whole thing awful. And then, um, we were, we were also, we were building a home, um, that was basically our dream home. And so everything had to change. We just had to be like, okay, well, we're going to live on one salary and cannot build that dream home today. (laughs) Had to get out of that, um, find, find a house to buy during COVID. That was, that was kind of ridiculous in and of itself too. Just no realtors could even come and show us a home. Um, I got COVID very early on. Um, yeah. And that, you know, my immune system was already just low, low from, everything that I was going through, I got a letter from the CDC. I was one of the first hundred, I was in the first hundred thousand people in the United States to get COVID. So are you serious? I got a letter for it. I didn't get any sort of prize or anything. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my so yeah. So that, ha- you know, it was just, um, whew, lots, lots going on. And that, for everyone sparked so much change in their kiddos, you know, from kids not being able to go to school and socialize and having to learn online and, you know, Samara learning differently, having to sit at a, there's, there's no way. I mean, most typical kids also could not learn that way. Um, it was just, it was a very, very difficult time. And so all of the progress that we had made with her really just, it it all, everything went backwards again. And we were back to where we started um, and trying to get in with doctors at that time. The wait lists were incredibly long um, for ABA, for the autism diagnosis, for everything. Um, It just, yeah, it was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And a lot of people can share that, share those stories too. So when did you start your organization? 
I started it before the company closed. I really started kind of dabbling into what could I do that would give back? Because like I said, from the beginning, the one thing that keeps me with my smile is helping others. It just is. And, um, what made you, what did you see that you were like, okay, well, they could do this better or people are really neat in need of this because. So what really started it is that I did a program called ABC. That's actually just a, a free program through the YMCA. And that program is it's called ABC for after breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And basically it's just, you know, a group of women who will get together and work out, um, talk to each other and support each other after breast cancer. And mm-hmm. I realized that it was, it was a very, you know, small little organization, but I was like, this could be so much bigger and could help so many more people. And so that's when I really wanted to start cancer killing goddess, because I realized that this, every, everyone needs the help after cancer, breast cancer or whatever type of cancer. I think what happens is, is that, you know, everyone's going to send you food while you're sick. Everyone's going to want to take care of your kids while you're sick. Everyone's there's, there's all these people coming out of the woodwork to help you when you're going through something, but then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden you're cured or you ring the bell or whatever it is. And then everybody's like, okay, it's over with cancer. It's not, you always have a fear that it's going to come back. You will, Mm -hmm. you will live with that probably forever. Um, your body has changed. Your sex drive has changed. You're probably on some sort of hormones that make you either gain weight or lose weight too much. Um, your hair has changed. Your skin has, they're just, every single aspect of your reality is different. And so what I try to do with cancer killing goddess is to bring a little bit of lightheartedness to it and uh, let people know that what they're going through is normal <laughs> and that it's okay to to have to sit back and regroup and start over and i just want to help them through that that's phenomenal that really is <laughs> that is phenomenal i yeah. mean as I start to speak to, um, more and more people, you know, I have, it, it's, I, every, as my life has kind of, you know, done this, that people have come back into my life and I hear their stories and I'm like, oh, wow. And there are a lot of, a lot of people who have dealt with pretty much everybody ha- it's touch cancers touch oh, their yeah. lives in some way or form, yeah. you know? Yes, for sure. And, yeah. I, um, Actually, now that I think about it, I remember when Samara was in my office, I was actually just dealing with an aunt who had cancer and it was oh. kind of like, she didn't tell us. So it was like, yeah. when I was, told, I was the one in New York and my sister's in Miami. She's like, uh, I need you to go to the XYZ right now because this is happening. And I, and you, you just, it's, um, yeah. And I find that too, a lot of, um, a lot of the people that I work with, they are very private about it Mm -hmm. and, um, some even private with their spouses 
because of different, you know, whatever different things. And, um, we work a lot on that, just trying to unpack like that. It's okay. It's okay to share the feelings and the fear and the, and the, and sometimes the good, you know, there's, there's all different pieces and aspects to going through that, that, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people are very private and some of them will never share it, but they could share it maybe with me because I'm just this stranger on the other end. And sometimes that's easier. Sometimes that's easier Mm -hmm. for people. Um, it's a remarkable story. Remarkable. (laughs) (laughs) Remarkable. So now you have just gone through breast cancer, which I mean, has changed your life in a way that like, is just, uh, incredible. Um, so what happened, what happens next? What happened? What happened after that? (laughs) So last year was the last year was the worst year for Samara, for sure. She, um, 2022. Yeah. Um, the, you know, partly the aggression and the violence coming back partly was the same as it always was, but she's bigger now, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different game. Um, she broke my nose and that, kind of started. And what, how did that happen? Like, tell us like again, or tell me again, yeah. like, how did that happen? Like, cause so the sad, the sad thing about it is that she's so delayed that if I were a fly on the wall and looking in, I, it, it made me very sad to think about that day. It was still makes me very sad to think about that day because she was wearing a tutu and like a, a unicorn costume type of thing um, and being herself, which is, you know, think of like a second grader, but in, in a big body. Um, she, something triggered her and she got aggressive Um Greta always knows that we have a plan that she's supposed to leave when Samara, her younger daughter. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's supposed to leave, go to the neighbors when this happened, this type of thing happens. And she didn't want to leave that day. And that was agitating Samara even more that she was there. Um, so I was by myself. So I'm trying to keep both of them safe and keep myself safe. And it didn't work. And she punched me in the face when she broke my nose, of course, the noses bleed like crazy. So there's, there's blood everywhere and there's blood on her hand. And she looked and she saw it on her hand. And then she looked at me and she, mommy, did I do that? Like she just was out of her body, out of her mind at, at that time. Um, and I had to go to the hospital, um, and get, you know, checked and all this. And, that sparked a whole craziness with uh, child protective services. And I actually thought, and, and what could have happened in that case is that child protective services could have actually taken Greta away from us because of the fact that we were not keeping her safe in our home. Um, because they suggested that we remove Samara from our home. Now, 
even though they su- they're suggesting to remove her from our home, they're not giving us any options that are great for her. It's basically like, oh, put her in a group home um, where she's going to learn more bad behaviors and all this. Um, she was, she was, um, the police at the ER also, I guess they, the state is what happens. The state presses charges. So there, it was a domestic violence case against Samara. Um, so we had to have lawyers, we had to have lawyers involved to keep our children and to get Samara out of this domestic violence case. And I, it, it's heartbreaking. That's puzzling. A domestic violence case against your child when they have, yeah. And, there are and, okay. and also I didn't want this case. It wasn't me. It was, I, I'm not pressing any charges. So even when I had to stand in front of the judge and he's like, well, are things better now? I'm like, I never wanted to be here in the first place. This is, this is a little girl who is wearing a unicorn costume did this. Like the, this is not the, you know, this, this is not what you think it is. It's mental illness. And Oh, I could, I could talk about mental illness for, for a year, just how our system is so flawed with, with how we deal with individuals who cannot control things that, you know, that their mind puts on them. So now I, yes, the other day when we were speaking, like what really just, um, pulls at my heart is the fact that after all that you've been through, you are still advocating for your child, which is something that you, you would think that most people would do, but I just, that just, you know, I, your love for Samara is, uh, just incredible, you know? Yeah, it is. It is. And I know, oof, I know she's going to do great things. I just do. Mm-hmm. I know that, um, yeah, I think I told you this, her, my mess is my message and she is a mess. <laughs> we are a mess, but, yeah. um, the message is there to, you know, hopefully help someone, someone else who's, who's dealing with all this. I mean, I remember calling my mom when I got the notification that like, oh my gosh, Greta could like, I, it just, it was not something I could even fathom that I could Mm -hmm. lose Greta over this situation. And I couldn't even speak. I was crying so hard. She was, she thought someone died. She was like, I, you know, and I was just like, I, I can't even comprehend that this is what's happening in my life. And yeah, it, but the thing is you have to fight. You have to fight. And I think it's because things are just, things do not come easy um, for people medical wise, system wise, government wise, you know, we have, you have to fight. You have to have that fortitude or, or what? I mean, there's just no choice. Wow. So where are we today? So today I am very happy. Since February, um, kept fighting, kept fighting, kept fighting. I got um, Samara into ABA. Um, I got our insurance to cover it. Um, We have 
her there, you know, she's there now. She's learning social skills. Um, yesterday uh, was kind of funny because I picked her up and they said, well, she had a bad, uh, bad day. She, they're at a game store and they're learning to play games. And it's just kind of cute to, to think of this. Like she will say, no offense, but, and then she'll say something offensive, you know? Like everyone does this, right? Yeah. Or, or she'll say she'll say something offensive, and then she realizes she's offended you, and she'll say it's a joke, it's a joke. And so they're teaching her how not to be offensive and not to joke. Um, so you're not supposed to talk about people's feet that stink. That was what she learned yesterday. <laughs> that is hilarious. But, um, oh my god! Yeah. So she. So we're in a good place. We're in a good place right now. We really are. Um, I feel a little bit like a somewhat normal mom right now, and that's that's a great great place to be. And like, what is your your biggest dream for yourself and your your your? I'm going to say Samara, but really your children, because I feel like you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I just want them to be happy. I do. I just want, I want them to experience real joy. I really do. I want them to experience all the good things that they can experience. I want to expose them to everything that I can expose them to and, um, travel with them and show them the world and different cultures and just allow them to, uh, suck it all in and, and be joyful people. That's, that's my, my goal just to raise, raise some happy kids. And for yourself as well as uh, cancer killing goddess. Yeah. So I, um, just yesterday actually had a request for, um, a boutique that wants to sell. Like I, I give a little, like a tote bag and a, and a journal t-shirt like to the clients and someone wants to sell them so that was amazing that was kind of like a a little little good thing like um yeah so so there could be there could be growth there there really could beyond beyond the coaching and and everything so yeah so that could be that could be something and um yeah I just I just want to keep going keep 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 inspiring as much as I can. Well, I've got to tell you, this is like, I already knew it was an incredible story when we started (laughs) today, but like, as per usual, you know, (laughs) Uh, know, um, I mean, just what an incredible life you've had. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just been very lucky. I am very, very lucky. I don't even think, I don't believe in luck. You're just so blessed and you have had a remarkable life from personal to business to, um, in every aspect, you've traveled the world, you've done things, you've reconnected with your, your significant, your significant from high school, your, your, um, your, your love from high school, uh, the person you were supposed to be with. Um, everything has clicked into place. It's really incredible. Yeah. It's, it feels, I am blessed. I, I definitely am. I, I know that everything happens for a reason. I know that. I, I think that this, um, yeah, it's a, it's an awesome path that I've been able to be on. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. As usual, you're the best listener. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, Holly. I just, you know, I'm just sending you like a massive hug from Spain. You know, I just, Me too. you know how I feel. I'm not going to, I always just say the thing. I'm like, yeah, believe it. You're just amazing. But it's really, really true. And I, I, what I just, to be perfectly honest with you, what is most impressive about you, because again, most people would hide, you know, and you would under, understandably so. Yeah. But you open up and you help people. And, you know, you, t- out of, you know, ashes, you, you rise again. And I think that's really remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for sharing with us. Thank you everybody for joining us on our, I don't know which episode this is, but on our episode of um, Ile by the Glass. And uh, thank you so much for joining us and we'll speak soon. (laughs) Bye-bye. Are you ready to go down the rabbit hole? The All Things Alice podcast will explore the cultural phenomena of Alice in Wonderland. Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy, is your host through a wonderverse of interviews from all types of creators as they chronicle the dark yet empowering reality of Lewis Carroll's fantasies and answer the question, what is it about Alice that captivates us still today? The All Things Alice podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. 